Luke 21, verses 5 through 19. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Grass withers, the flower fades. Word of our God stands forever. So many people are fascinated with the idea of predicting the future. What's going to happen next? And we have, when, when is it all going to go wrong is usually the general theme. And we talk, start talking about what's going to happen next. It's usually just, when is everything going to devolve into apocalypse and everything's going to go wrong? Um, that's usually a part of future predictions. A friend of mine gave me this. They had received it in the mail. Uh, it went out to everyone, not here in Mount Air. Unfortunately, I didn't get to deliver these, but it was out of town. And uh, this is your postcard everyone got. Exclusive survival guidance. Your Time Arc service modules have returned. Your creator's Time Arc service modules have returned for your survival. It says this at the bottom. Positive survival is not possible on this continent. You must evacuate. And I assume that if you go to this website, which I don't want you to go to, but if you did go to this website... They maybe they would liberate you from your land, possibly, or something, so that you could go somewhere else. I, you know, I'm sure there's some sort of deal uh, going on. But people are fascinated with this sort of idea that the end is coming. Something is going to go on. This group here thinks you must evacuate. They're possibly going to help you get, a, get, a, get rid of your land and get somewhere else. I don't know. But they're not the only group 
to make claims and to make radical warnings like this. We have many famous people that I don't want to mention their names here for you because if you don't know them, good for you. Uh, you don't need to know them. But we'll make all sorts of predictions and prophecies and they've had many, some of them famously have flopped and made predictions. The day has come that the people, supporters had liquidated everything and spent money on giant advertising campaigns so they can buy billboards, let everyone know the end is coming and then the day comes and um, it doesn't happen. They've got to be, um, like if people will predict, this year is the, the return of Jesus is going to happen. Uh, he's going to come back and they give you the year. They have got to be the most miserable people on New Year's Day the next year, don't they? Don't hang out with them the day following their New Year's prediction. But they, they love to make predictions about the return of Jesus and they see signs of his second coming seemingly around every corner, going through the world news, always looking for signs around the corner of Christ's return. Well, this morning we're heading into what is a very uh, polarizing section of the Gospel of Luke. This is, Lucan's, this is the Lucan version, Matthew and Mark also have it, of the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. He's going back and forth this final few days of his life, between the temple and then down the Valley of Kidron, I believe, and then up on the Mount of Olives, where you can look back and you can see the temple and you can see all of Jerusalem beautifully laid out before you. And he's going back and forth and he's having now this discourse about what's going to happen next, what's, what's coming in the world. And either, either you love this kind of stuff, like I've read this this morning and you're thinking, finally, we're getting to some good stuff, or else you think, Oh, I, was, I was hoping we could skip this part. This is, stuff is so confusing and befuddling, I don't even want to talk about it. Sometimes you either love this or you find it so confusing that you hate it. And I hope to this morning land us somewhere more in the middle. There are so many rabbit trails we could chase. I do not have time for all of them. Questions like, are you premillennial? Are you postmillennial? Are you amillennial? Are you a pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation? Are you a preterist? Are you a partial preterist? Are you a futurist? And at this point, most of us are just confused. We're not on any of those things. I don't know. I'm confused. Well, I'm going to spare you. If, you, if, if that really like geeks you out and you love it, come see me, because it does me too. And I would love to sit back in my office and go through some theology on those things with you. I'd be glad to do that. But our, that is not our time this morning, how we're going to use it. The, the, briefly, the argument comes from, there's two ways of looking at this passage. There's two ways uh, of looking at these events. And almost everyone agrees there's two kinds of predictions going on here. When you're reading Bible prophecies, think of like bifocals, how you're looking through one lens, but some of it is, is closer in your view than the other. It's all the same thing, but some's close and some's far. And, the, and when you're reading this, there are these predictions that Jesus is making that's like looking through bifocals. Some of the things he's predicting are very close. The destruction of the temple, this is like, this is around, this is early 30s AD. The destruction of the temple occurs in AD 70. In less than 40 years, some of these things Jesus is saying that are going to happen, happen very soon for them. Yet some of them have even yet to happen. Some of them are yet farther away. So it's this same prediction. And so the, the, the difference comes of, of which parts you view as way in the future and which parts you say are right now. Some people say, well, it's all already happened. Some say, well, it's all yet to be. There's, there's these different ways of viewing this, this prophecy. But it's clear that some of these have happened. 
the temple in Jerusalem was wiped out. And with startling accuracy, we've said this earlier in our series through the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus talks about they're going to surround you and build up ramparts and break into Jerusalem. And it's, it's absolutely what happened. Starting in A.D. 67, the Romans came and they, they cut off Jerusalem. And it was, it was, it's horrible to read the history of the famine that came and the, the atrocities that were committed on this city until eventually Jerusalem was sacked. And the temple, as Jesus says, is raised the, these, these huge temple stones, this, this huge uh, complex is tore to the ground. So that, that happens. There is very much a real fulfillment within 40 years. Now, it's, I, I want to say it's like, it's, um, it's, it's like a startling um, accuracy. But really, it, it, if, if God is going to say, Jesus, as the Son of God, as God in human flesh, is going to say such a thing is going to happen, it really shouldn't surprise us that he has amazing accuracy in knowing how that is going to go on. But the big picture that I want us to focus on this morning is what is Jesus' reason for why he shares this information with them? Is his main goal just a description of the events that will take place before his return? Uh, one a commentator says this, The Savior's prophecies concerning the end of the world were not intended to satisfy human curiosity about the program of the ages or to give his disciples ground for gloating over the final destruction of the wicked. No, he always stressed the importance of the challenge presented by the coming events. They were a call to true repentance and to constant watchfulness. This is what Jesus is driving out here. Is his main goal just a description of the events that will take place before his return? Well, he certainly does share them, but I don't think that's his main purpose. It seems more likely that he is sharing these future occurrences so that those who remain as these things come along, they will not be surprised. They will, they will know these things are coming and therefore be encouraged and know how to live while they wait. And I come to that conclusion because of the main imperatives that we get from this text. There are many descriptions of what will occur in the future here but they seem to culminate in what the followers of Jesus should do because of his coming. What the believers should do because of this imminent coming. Not all the, now they're there, but the big ideas are what we should then do and how we should feel about Christ because of all these things that are happening. happening which takes us to our big idea for this morning. Big deep thought. Jesus is in charge Things will be tough. Do not despair. Jesus is in charge. However, yes, things will be tough. Difficult times are in the future for his disciples. Yet, he shares this with them that this is going to happen so they would not despair. This conversation first comes to us because of the awe of the disciples, right? The whole narrative lays out. They're looking at the temple. Look at this, Jesus. Isn't this amazing? Isn't this oppressive? They are amazed at the, the, the beauty and the splendor of the temple, and, and rightly so. If you read historical accounts 
of this building that you would, you would be coming, you would top the, the mountain on the way from Bethany over the Mount of Olives, and you, you would, it would sometimes be blinding. It was so dazzling white. The, the white stone that they used was so big and so beautiful that it would be almost blinding, and it would look like, people would comment, that it looked like snow on top of the mountain, like a fresh layer of snow on top of this hill because of the great beauty of this temple. So the disciples are amazed and they're walking by these blocks and you could do them you can do the math but the size of the blocks are ginormous are ginormous are huge which actually ginormous is a word now did you know that it's in the dictionary i thought it was made up but i looked it up it actually is a word they i think they added it because it's giant and enormous rabbit trail huge blocks huge blocks of this temple that that and they're walking by isn't this amazing isn't this beautiful and they just they they, they would have seemed immovable and invincible. Look how big, how solid, how sturdy, how real this is. How real this seemed to them. It seemed immovable and invincible. And maybe they couldn't just wait. Jesus, won't it be great when we're in charge of all of this? Look at this institution that is immovable. Won't it be great when we come back and we're in charge of it all? Maybe that's what they are thinking, but he has a different plan. He lets them know that what they think is so secure, it's gonna disappear. Within 40 years, it's gonna be gone. It's going to be leveled. What they feel is so real and so true and so important and so big. Jesus says, well, it's not be long. This is gonna to be totally wiped out. I mean, imagine walking through New York or Chicago. Have you ever been to the city? I, I've taken a few trips to both places and I try hard to like not put on my Midwesterner badge by walking around like looking up at these buildings, but I can't, I can't help it. I'm just like, I don't care. I guess you're gonna have to ask me for money when I'm out because I'm gonna, I'm gonna show my cards. I'm, a, I'm visiting because here I am gazing up at the top of the, the John Hancock building, which is just magnificent and amazing, but it's so huge. Can you imagine standing and looking at this thing and someone saying, one of these days, this is gonna be totally gone. There's gonna be a trace of this thing even left which probably is the reality. I mean, actually. But what would you, th I mean, you're saying that, you're thinking, how can this giant, beautiful testament to modern engineering ever be torn down? Something colossal will have gone wrong if the city of Chicago is raised, will it not? If New York is raised, something really bad and really serious has gone on. You would be very shocked at this would ever happen. These systems that hold these things in place have to be totally removed. How terrifying would that be? But what if, how would it make you feel about the one who said it then turned out to be telling you the truth? <laughs> That's even more startling that this person who was able to look at this thing that seems so secure and say the day is coming, this is wiped out. And then when it actually is, the only way that a person could know this and predict this and to see it occur then with such accuracy is if that same person was the one who's in charge of it all. How was Jesus able to look at the temple and say, the day is coming when this is wiped out? He's only able to do that because Jesus is truly in charge. That is one of the big ideas Jesus is getting across to his disciples. What you think is so secure, it's, it's going to be raised. He's the one that's secure. Jesus is the one who's in charge. He is the one that will not be moved. The big idea that he is trying to get across, Jesus is in charge. Yet, 
major trouble is going to come to all men, including those who are his followers. And he does not want them to be surprised, but strengthened so that they will not despair when this trouble comes. Because Jesus is in charge of it all, there are four implications from our text. We're going to look at them in order. If you still have your Bible out, page 1046, Luke 21, uh, we're going to look at these four implications from this text. First is that because Jesus is in charge, those who are his shouldn't be led astray. Verse 8, And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. In the account in Matthew and Mark, Jesus calls them false Christs. False anointed ones will show up. And we should be very wary of anyone who comes claiming special knowledge or some sort of special anointing. Lots of TV preachers are famous for talking about the idea of having a special anointing or giving a special anointing. In a very real way, they're talking about becoming a special anointed one, a special Christ. And Jesus is giving warnings. Many people will come saying, I am the Christ, or look, I am he, or here I am, having these special teachings and having these special anointings. But Jesus has given us warning. Do not be led astray by them. Many popular books today get their popularity by pretending to speak in some special way for God. Some of them are even so bold as to, in italicize, they try to be gracious by doing it in italics at least, but will write something as though it is God communicating to you through them. That's very dangerous. I'll just warn you. I mean, I'll give some grace. They may be in ignorance or, you know, just not, they may have a good heart in trying to do it. But be wary of those who claim to speak for God in that authoritative way. They are, there are many who will come along saying they're the ones, they're the anointed ones, they have the anointing, and we should not be led astray. We should be very careful of such things. Some may be doing so out of unintentional motives, but they are doing so out of the spirit of Antichrist, a very real spirit in and among the world, moving many, many Antichrists, First John talks about. Do not be led astray by those with special knowledge, special interpretations, special understanding. That is dangerous ground, and Jesus warns us to not follow them and be led astray. Jesus knows what's going on. He knows what we need to hear. That is why he has commissioned his followers, who are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to record these things down so that we might be led straight, so that we might have a true and certain anchor in the Word of God, in the Holy Scriptures, for us to be guided by. That is what he has done. He has given us his written word. So because Jesus is in charge, those who are his shouldn't be led astray. We have one, we have one leader. We have one follower, it, one, one, one that we follow. It is Christ. The second thing, though, is when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. Because Jesus is in charge, those who are his shouldn't be terrified. Wars and tumults of wars. That was Jesus speaking 2,000 years ago almost. And the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? How many wars and rumors and wars and tumults? I mean, you think about we just moved 
the USS Abraham Lincoln down the Suez Canal so that it could go sit over in the Persian Gulf because Iran has uh, allegedly said things we don't like. There's a rumor and a tumult of war just in the past week's news of all sorts of things going on. North Korea and, and all of their craziness and exploration with nuclear weapons, all of these sorts of things. Iran and its exploration of nuclear weapons, all these things going on. Wars and tumults and rumors of wars going on all the time. What are we to do? Because Jesus is in charge, one thing we're not to do is to be terrified. We are not to be ruled by the affairs of this world. This doesn't mean we aren't concerned with them or that we do not work to make things better, but we are not to be surprised when a broken world does broken things. And we aren't terrified because it doesn't mean for a second that Jesus has lost control. He knows this is all going on. Jesus is in charge. Things will be tough. There will be rumors of wars. There will be real wars. There will be tumults going on. But he has not lost his charge. All of these things are under the rule of his sovereign hand. And so we rest in him. Not in insanity by rejoicing that things are bad and broken. But we rest in the midst of what at times brings many sorrows. Because our God, we rejoice in those things because our God is still on the throne. So we, we we first, because Jesus is in charge, we shouldn't be led astray. Secondly, because Jesus is in charge, we shouldn't be terrified. Thirdly, because Jesus is in charge, we shouldn't be silent. You see this on down, and they're starting to get captured. They're being persecuted after all these kingdoms against kingdoms, nations against nations, famines, pestilences, terrors, signs in the heavens. They're going to grab you, lay their hands on you, persecute you, brought to the synagogues and prisons, Verse 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Because Jesus is in charge, those who are his should not keep silent. This imperative and this command, it's coming right here out of verse 13. Because we know that Jesus is in charge, we ought to speak up and to speak out about him. We should live in this world as witnesses. With the reality that knowing that Jesus is in charge, we should speak up about the reality of our Savior, even if it comes at the cost of our own lives. We should not be silent about the good news about what we know about Christ, what has been revealed to us and given to us in the gospel. Very few of us are facing that level of persecution or being dragged before court officials and our lives being threatened. Yet the opportunity to not be silent, the command for us to not be silent is still waiting there for many of us to speak up about the good news of Christ, this Christ who is in charge. And fourthly, because Jesus is in charge, those who are his shouldn't give up. Verse 17, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head, not a hair of your head will perish by your endurance, you will gain your lives. While all of this is going down, the wars and the rumors of wars, what are the believers in Christ doing? They are enduring to the end. How are they doing that? I mean, you think about all the difficulty. I mean, and just the, even apart from wars and rumors of wars, you take about the difficulties of just regular life. 
all the sorrows that come to just interpersonal wars with one another here in our nice Midwestern town, all the difficulties that come here, all the problems that come in your own life. How, how does one endure? How does one keep in front of them this truth that Jesus is in charge? How do we endure? Well, verse 17 is amazing. Or 18. Verse 17 says, You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. And he's just got done saying in verse 16, Some of you they will put to death. But verse 18 says, Not a hair of your head will perish. What kind of nonsense? Did, did, what kind of nonsense is that? Jesus has forgotten what he just said a sentence earlier, saying some of you will be put to death, but then not a hair of your head will perish. A hair of your head, that's right. I almost thought I said the head of your hair. Uh, not a hair of your head will perish. How can you die, but yet not have even a hair of your head that would perish? Is Jesus confused that when we die, our hair dies too? I mean, I, no, that was, that was a lame joke, but he's not confused by that, right? If we die, your hair dies too. That is not, is not, that is not, he's not confused by this. He wants his followers to ground themselves in something far deeper than this temporary life. This is fading. Wars and rumors and wars, difficulties, investing all of your life in this here now life is, is futile, is fading. Placing all of your joy in this here now life is fading. That doesn't mean we don't enjoy this life. I'm not, I'm not becoming a stoic to say there's no enjoyment of this life. But to place all of your stock in this life when the rumors and wars and tumults and disease and sorrow and strife come along and you've placed all your joy in this life, then everything perishes with this fading world. And Jesus is calling his disciples, he's calling you, he's calling me to place our joy and our hope not in this terminating, perishing, fading life, but in something far greater, in the God who is in charge. The things that seem so solid to the disciples, the temple, this is so real. I mean, that's what we talk about in our, in our modern world. Oh, these things that, that, that lure us. and they, they feel so real. This has to be true. It, it seems so right. It's what I want to do. It seems so real. And Jesus is saying, these things you think are so real, one of these days, they'll be, they're gone and they're fading. He alone is the God in charge of everything. Life is going to be turned upside down. And what then? What then? How do you answer for yourself? You do know you are facing death, right? Every day that you get up and walk in here is one less day on your calendar of days left in your life. You are facing death. I'm not trying that to be, to be glum and morose. It is a reality that we live apart from far too much. You are facing death. And if not your own becoming imminently close, Someone that you love is getting closer and closer and closer to their death. What will you do as that which seems so solid, this other person, this, this life, this connection, this thing, it seems so real. What will you do when that security, when that thing vanishes? And Jesus' appeal to us is that we would place our hope in something far more secure than this war-filled persecution-producing, trial-plagued, and broken life. 
to plant your hope in something far greater. He wants you to trust in the one who can keep every hair of your head from perishing, even if you lose your own life. Twice in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has taken us up this theme. In Luke 9, 24 and 17, 33, we hear him say that whoever loses their life for his sake and the gospel's sake truly finds it. Whoever loses their life truly finds it. Whoever says goodbye to the things of this world, this, this fading life, whoever loses this life is the one who truly finds it and consequently the one who gains all the things in this world. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? It's a hypothetical because the answer is nothing. Nothing. Jesus is saying that in coming to him, we have something of such great value that it outweighs all other difficulty and disturbance we may encounter. How can that be? It is so because when we come to him, we get him. Not as, yes, his benefits, but not just as, it isn't just like God is the, is the great vending machine in the sky that we come to him and we get all these, he pumps out all the vending, all the tricks and all the treats. When we come to him, what do we get? We get him. He is the way and he is the reward. Not just his benefits, not just a moment of help. We get him. The God of the universe becomes our father, becomes the one who no longer fights against us in our sinfulness, but now fights for us. This is what we get. Christ becomes our mediator and our intercessor. The, high, the, the son of God begins to pray for you. This is what we get. Our life becomes eternal life with him, never to be lost or diminished. And if that is the case, what can be taken away from us that in the final analysis will be true loss? If we have him, if we have him, what can we lose that truly can be considered loss in comparison to the gain of Christ. This is what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3. Everything that I've gained, whatever I've gained, I count it as rubbish in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith. That's what we gain. We will have God himself. Whatever tragedy may come our way, we can endure because Jesus is ours. That is what the gospel brings to us. Security, hope, peace, and full and final joy. Though Jesus is in charge, though things will be tough, do not despair. Because in having him, we have everything. And this fading world may pass away, but Christ will not. He will return. He will redeem and reconcile and, and bring to full consummation all those who are his for his ultimate glory and for our forever joy in him. Let's pray. Father, may this be our hope. We come this morning at, at so many different places in our walk with you. So many of us actively in a struggle, actively in something very sorrowful, some things going well, and not, not immediately pressed with some urgent desire all along the spectrum. And Father, for each one of us, what we need most is the peace, the hope, and the security 
that is only found in you. This morning as we come to communion, Father, break our hearts over our sinfulness, that we would run from all of these temporal things that we think are going to give us satisfaction, that we would repent of the things that displease you, and that we would cling to you knowing you alone are the giver of life. And we can say goodbye to all things if only we would gain you. Help us now in this place, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.